Thank you so much, Pamela. Isn't that why we come? We come to learn and then to turn around and enrich those that we love the most, our husband, our children, our grandchildren, extended family members, our neighbors, our friends. You're putting in the work, ladies, and because such, God is going to reward you. And just because you might not grasp everything that we're, we're learning right now, it's okay. You're going to grasp enough you know, just have faith that by showing up, you will ultimately learn what you need to learn to short the people that you love. So my name is Julene Jackson. I'm with Moms for America. I've been with Moms for America. Oh, wow. Like 13, 14 years. And Tressie and um, Z, maybe not quite so long. Uh, Z from Colorado, Tressie from Texas are our behind the scenes women making all this happen. We're so grateful to have you here. It's, uh, I hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day with your celebrations, your flags, your patriotism. I hope you told some good stories to the people that you love. Uh, you know, just sometimes we always seem to hear the worst of this rising generation, but my husband and I, let's see that first slide, Tressie, we're blessed to be able to go to the Naval Academy graduation. There was 1,100 midshipmen is what they call men and women that graduate from the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. They call them midshipmen. Uh, we're going to talk today about the attack on America's role in the world. And you will understand more clearly what that means as we go through this material today. So let's see that next slide. So this graduation was 1,100 midshipmen. It was a beautiful day. The Blue Angels flew over. There was a 21-gun salute. These young cadets represent to me everything that is right with this rising generation. They are sober, intelligent, smart, patriotic young people. Now, my husband oversees, these are some of the uh, midshipmen, and they dress in uniform, don't they? a man in a uniform, and here they were on uh, the uh, ground of the football stadium there. And let's see the next slide. We had the Secretary of Defense. His name is Lloyd Austin spoke and he is actually a West Point graduate and the Secretary of the Navy spoke and here's some of the midshipmen as uh, some of them are graduating the first two years they have to wear their uniform every time they leave uh, the academy and then the juniors and seniors can wear civilian clothes sometimes on the weekends and so to speak but they're just uh, fabulous uh, young men and young women, and to me, uh, you, you know, are the hope of our future. So, you know, as, as mamas and grandmothers, I think you've heard me say this before, you can go to full screen for a moment, that we are the beacon of light. We are what is going to anchor this rising generation that's coming up where the enemies of God and the enemies of freedom are going after these young people. We can come to full screen, Tressie, that'd be great. Just yesterday, I had lunch with a girlfriend and the grandmother, my friend and the grandmother, uh, and they were expressing um, that they're worried sick about their uh, her daughter who is in her mid-30s, who is gay and now transitioning to be a boy. And so changing the, uh, um, the pronouns and uh, has lost a job that he, she, he had for 10 years and now is experiencing uh, health uh, problems as well. And the, these women are, are you know, deeply religious and God-fearing. This child had served church missions all throughout her youth and now is no longer you know, 
professing to believe in the, the God of her childhood, she said, the mother said that she believes in a different kind of God. And so all of us could tell similar stories. I know we could, we're feeling the fiery darks penetrate into our home and onto our children and grandchildren, our friends, friends and grandchildren. And so we want, we want to, you know, get on that wall and say, Lord, what can we do? You know, armor us up. We want to be a part of the solution. So I commend you for showing up each week and reminding yourself that it's only through God that we're going to be able to, you know, heal, heal our families, heal our, our, our nation. And that as we take our children, our grandchildren to God, even if they won't accept you know what we're telling them just by our sheer example of them seeing us worship and pray and study and then we continue to show up online and do your readings and talk about what you're learning with them god will put on your heart what you can do to be that kind of umbrella of protection for those that you love around you please know that your efforts will pay off even if you don't see the fruits of it now sometimes when your kids are little you're wondering if they're hearing any of what you're saying certainly when they're teenagers and they're rolling their eyes at you but we we do it anyways we act and we move in faith and god makes up the difference let's see that next slide so we are at the very last section of seminar three. Now this seminar is a sobering seminar because we've learned about all the attacks, the attacks on our education system, the attacks on religion, the attacks on the constitution. And today we're gonna to talk about uh, some of these various people, these master planners, these entities, these organizations that have attacked, that are attacking our, our nation as a whole. And uh, a lot of what I'm going to say is, is going to ring familiar to you because we're seeing it right before our eyes. So um, ho hopefully you've got our seminar number four because that's what we'll start next week. And that is about solutions. That is my favorite seminar. So stay tuned. So when the American, our, our founding fathers established this nation, they knew that what they were doing was much greater than just setting up a government uh, for America. They were fulfilling a God-given stewardship, which they called manifest destiny. Let's see that next slide. I'm not quite sure. Oh, I think it's, we can just go to full screen for a moment, Tressie. So this whole idea of manifest destiny was that there was like a, a heavenly ordination that they had to be an example and a blessing to the entire human race. This is the last principle in the 5,000 year leap. Let's go to full screen, Tressie, if we could. Um, the, tw the 28th principle talks about, you know, this understanding that they knew where much was given, much was required. And uh, John Adams talks about this. There's a wonderful quote on that front page by John Adams, attesting to their manifest destiny. And then James Madison also talked about, happily for America, we trust for the whole human race. We have pursued a more noble and new course. And then let's see that next slide, if we could, Tressie, that quote by uh, Thomas Jefferson, where he said, a just and solid Republican government maintained here will be a standing monument an example for the aim and imitation of the people of other countries. And I join with you in the hope and belief that our revolution and its consequences will ameliorate, that means improve the condition of man over a great portion of the globe. So they knew that what they had done was divinely inspired. They knew that these documents had been struck off 
by the hand of God, where much was given, much was going to be required to help elevate the standard all throughout the world. John Jay, the Supreme Court uh, Justice, the first Supreme Court Justice, who actually started the Bible Society, said that the American people have been literally thrust into an amazing accumulation of fortunate circumstances. This whole generation at the founding of this nation had this feeling uh, that they were under obligation and had a sense of mission which they felt compelled to fulfill as pioneer on the frontier of political science and prosperity economics. This was a part of why they understood they had this manifest destiny to bless all of the human race. So even though the founders wanted this American experiment duplicated throughout the world, they didn't want it to be implemented in a, dic a dictatorial or forceful manner. They didn't want to control the world. Only morally strong and virtuous people have a desire to bless the world. All right, They wanted to lead by example. When you are not led by God, you want to conquer and you want to amass territory and terrorize. And we've seen a lot of that in world's history. So they wanted to be a good example. Let's see that next slide, Tressie. Thank you, honey. So they often refer to America's manifest destiny. And, and you've heard uh, us talk about this now as uh, this being from the New Testament, being a city on the hill, this theme of a city on the hill. And it was integral to a part of this American scene. Uh, our, one of our very first governors uh, to the new world, uh, Governor Winthrop, John Winthrop said in 1630, and, and it was Reagan who evoked this example of Governor Winthrop. Uh, when Reagan spoke when he was governor of California in, in 1974, but he said, John Wilthrop said, we will be as a city upon the hill when he was on the deck of the Arabella in 1630 uh, off the coast of Massachusetts. He said, we will be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. So even back then in the 1600s, they knew that what they were about to embark, embark, embark upon was going to change the world. Ronald Reagan, let's see that next quote, said, we cannot escape our destiny, nor should we try to do so. We are indeed and are, and we are today the last best hope of man on the earth. And he would use this a lot uh, when he was the president of the United States, this, this theme, this idea. He was the president from 1981 uh, to 89. So our founding fathers wanted to coordinate with other nations, not necessarily consolidate power or conquer them. They didn't want to meddle in the affairs of other nations because they knew that was a dangerous thing to do uh, for an independent country. So they wanted, let's see that next slide. Thomas Jefferson said they wanted to have commerce with all nations and alliances with none should be our motto, was his quote. And that is principle 25 in the 5,000 year leap, peace and commerce and honest friendship with all nations entangling alliances with none. Jefferson would go on to say, we should avoid implicating ourselves with the power of other nations, even in support of principles, which we mean to pursue. They have so many other interests that are different from ours that we must avoid being entangled with them. So this was the founders doctrine of separatism. Now it, it needs to be understood that that's different from isol, isolation, isolation, <laughs> being isolated, isolation, isolationism, isolationism, 
isolationism. There you go. The, the latter separation, uh, separatism implies a complete or isolationism <laughs> implies a complete seclusion from other nations uh, and to somehow be detached or incubated in iso isolation from other nations. That's not what our founders wanted. Okay, that's not what they meant by separatism. How in the world can you be an influence for good if you're so isolated and insular? So the, the founders really wanted the opposite. They wanted to they wanted to have a wholesome relationship with other nations, but they wanted to avoid uh, alliances of friendships with just certain nations because inevitably what happens when you make alliances, the enemies of that nation now becomes your enemy in a time of crisis and you might not have even done anything wrong. So George Washington understood this after his 20 years of service to our nation when he was getting ready uh, to, to step down as president after eight years in 1996. And uh, at the end of 1970-96 in his famous farewell address, let's see that quote. This is what he had to say. Oh, I love George Washington. Where are the George Washingtons now? But this is what he said in his farewell address. Let's observe good faith and justice towards all nations, cultivate peace and harmony with all religion and morality and join this kind of conduct. And can it be that good policy does not equally enjoin it? It will be worthy of a free, enlightened, and at no distant period, a great nation to give to mankind the magnanimous and too novel example of the people always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. This was his vision. This was his heart. Oh, it's one of the reasons George is behind me today. He's visiting class. Why? I just love George. So he said, let's see that next quote that temporary alliances may be justified for extraordinary emergencies, but other than that, harmony uh, and uh, liberal intercourse with all nations are recommended for policy, humanity, and interest. And he even talks about, there's a, another quote about commercial policy, how um, we should hold an equal and impartial hand, neither seeking or granting exclusive favors or preferences to to companies, but diffuse and diversify by gentle means the stream of commerce by forcing nothing uh, uh, And when it comes to establishing power in order to give to trade a stable course to define the rights of our merchants and to enable the government to support them. So what, what he's talking about, I don't have that quote up there for you, but he wanted limited government and he wanted that natural supply and demand to regulate the markets, let the free market dictate commerce, all right? So he was spot on how it should be. Oh, George Washington, I say, just come back to us. Or I even say, you know, let's pray to have the spirit of George Washington and Jefferson and, and Madison and Monroe prick the hearts of our leaders today. It certainly can't help. You know, you know, those men are so still um, interested in the affairs of this great land, which they established. So I heard my mama always used to pray uh, for the, our founding fathers that they would bless our leaders of this nation. And what a beautiful thing to invoke, you know, their wisdom and their spirit to, to inspire the leaders of today. Imagine if your children and grandchildren heard you pray that way for our leaders. So Jefferson also talked about uh, these principles of, of commerce and, and not getting entangled uh, 
um, with other nations and making alliances. And James Monroe, um, let's see that next slide, Trustee. In fact, the James Monroe, who would be the fifth president, is he the fifth or sixth? President of the United States from 1817 to 1825. He would, uh, you know, take the writings and, uh, of Jefferson and Washington, and he declared a, an official policy known as the Monroe Doctrine, and it just further states that uh, if if any kind of government or European governments try and colonize or interfere with the states in the, in America, it would be viewed as an act of aggression, and it would it would require us intervening, okay? So if they're coming and trying to, you know, enrode uh, into our lands and our, with their forces, then we're justified in, in getting involved. But also that the United States, now this is the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine, would not interfere with existing European colonies nor internal concerns of other European countries or countries in general, I would have to think. And so, you know, we kind of kept uh, this policy for for about the first 120, 125 years. And then America begins to make a radical shift in the early 1900s. So the Monroe uh, Doctrine policy was the official policy of the United States that we wouldn't get, we wouldn't meddle in other uh, countries' affairs uh, and, 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 and we wouldn't um, be on the defense unless there was an act of aggression. Uh, towards us, and then we would intervene. So uh, what began to happen is we began in the 1900s, early 1900s, began to intermeddle both politically and economically, uh, because guess what? We were the most powerful nation in the world. So we began to see in the 1900s these wars of intervention and foreign aid and, and the defense of democratic nations against, you know, uh, 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 dictatorships and it, it propelled us into wars and little mini wars and this is not what the founders intended this was not the doctrine that they wanted us you know honest and uh, fair friendships with all commerce with all so we went from separatism kind of being the world's peacemakers not wanting to take a hostile uh, posture unless there was a threat to us into internationalism where we now started to become the world's policemen. And all we have to do, let's see the next slide, is uh, look at you know how we're almost single-handedly funding the Ukraine war. I, I think I looked it up the other day, so far we've allocated $115 billion to Ukraine and Russia now is our arch enemy. They were not you know, two years ago. And now, you know, Russia is, is our arch enemy because of how we have uh, made this alliance with Ukraine. So we're economically funding this war. And then just look at, you know, the war uh, that we were involved in for 20 years, the Afghanistan war. And we got involved after 9-11 because, you know, they were um, harboring these terrorist cells, Al-Qaeda. So we invaded Afghanistan in the early 200s and, and we re replaced, we kicked the Taliban out, we replaced their government and we tried to do nation building and, and teach these people in Afghanistan to live under freedom. We were there for almost 20 years and, and under President Biden, the very last left. And did you know we spent $2 trillion uh, 
uh, over the 20 years we were there. I actually had a brother serve for seven years in Afghanistan and he was there to train the police force. And he said, the people just were not ready. They for centuries in Afghanistan had lived under ruler's law and they were not going to change overnight. Certainly not in two or three or seven or even 20 years. And it turned into us meddling into their affairs. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I understand it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's one thing to want to punish a government for harboring terrorists, but it's another thing maybe to stay for 20 years and, uh, and spend $2 trillion and try and tell them that, you know, how their government should be run. And what began to happen over that 20 years in Afghanistan, resentment built, Americans began to lose heart and the will to support it. And ultimately when the last person pulled out, remember about a year and a half ago, almost within minutes, the Taliban uh, came in, violence, erupted, the airports were overrun, the presidential palace was overrun, and all those little allies that had helped us for 20 years were just left high and dry. Their lives were in jeopardy and we did not do a very good job uh, uh, aiding or rescuing those who had helped us for the 20 years that we had been there. And so this is what happened as we began to shift from this idea, the Monroe Doctrine, and now wanting to uh, police the world. Uh, internationalism as is kind of uh, you know what we're what we're following now. So just as our founding fathers, you know, a group of uh, men, political leaders, and businessmen were a part of developing this country, this shift in direction was also uh, the handiwork of political and business leaders. Starting with, um, let's see the next slide. Starting with. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, remember he was the big progressive in the early 1900s, even though he was a Republican. Remember how he said, look, if it says that I can't do something as the president in the constitution, that means I can do it. So that was just the opposite of what the founders intended. But he said, if, if there's no restrictions on what I can't do, then I, that, that's my authority to do it. That, that was Theodore Roosevelt's mindset. And then of course, you know, we had uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was the president from 1913 to about 1921 during World War I. And under his watch, we got the 16th, the 17th Amendment, the Federal Reserve. And so there was this kind of this idea during the early 1900s that these men wanted to be founding fathers of change. And they also began to be known as master planners, kind of setting up uh, this idea of a new world order. So this was percolating in the early 1900s. And so to accomplish their designs, uh, as well as uh, you know their national intentions and their international intentions, they began to gather. There were about a hundred men in the top inner circle who represented the major dimensions of power, steel, oil, um, railroads, and, and so these men, and here's a few of them, uh, uh, had international dy uh, banking dynasties. They also had corpor corporations that uh, ha had an international scope. And because they were so wealthy, they set up these tax exempt foundations. A tax exempt foundation is like a group or organization for charitable, pro charitable purposes. They can call them religious foundations or scientific or educational foundations and they can hide their money, so to speak, or they're exempt, they're excused from paying taxes 
on uh, some of their huge wealth if they channel it into these foundations. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But uh, these men also infiltrated the highest offices in the government, especially in the United States government. So uh, the background story, let's see the next slide, Tressie, it is, comes from a book called Tragedy and Hope. It, it tells kind of the story of these master planners and it's documented and explained with excellent resources. Now here is, here is this uh, Tragedy and Hope. It has a different cover than the one up there, but it's it's the same book. It's by Carol Quigley, and he's actually a, a, a part of some of these uh, groups. Can you see how big it is? Let's see the next, the next or actually no, the naked capitalist look is so much smaller <laughs> and it gives a very good overview of tragedy and hope. So I would recommend reading The Naked Capitalist, but it, it um, because tragedy and hope, I tried to read it. It's 1100 pages, it's boring. To be honest with you, seminar two, three and four, uh, you get a really good summary of tragedy and hope. And then let's see the next slide. Uh, the Naked Communist book also explains uh, a lot about these master planners and these groups that um, were starting to form in the early 1900s that fundamentally wanted to change America because they were threatened by uh, the processes that were constitutionally put in place. Also, there's a, a Freeman Digest that you can get from the Kimber uh, curriculum. Let's see that next slide. Or um, I talked about this last week, that little, that little tax exempt foundation book that talks about um, uh, the master planners and Cleon Skousen actually interviewed some of those master planners and the results of the Reese report. Uh, uh, congressman Reese was a congressman from Tennessee who in the mid fifties noticed there was this anti-American sentiment and culture that was uh, being fostered and so, uh, Congress uh, gave him the authority to investigate these tax exempt foundations. And he found that uh, these tax exempt organizations were being used to support anti-American sentiment through their educational philanthropic foundations. And, um, and so that's documented. The White House has <clears throat> buried those Reese reports. It is very hard to find those Reese reports. If you want, they're in this little tax exempt foundation book at Kimber curriculum for like $18. It's very inexpensive, but it's interesting because in the 1950s, they found, you know, that there was nefarious things that these foundations were pushing out and, um, and, you know, putting in uh, textbooks, school textbooks and curriculums and, and donating them to schools and universities. So what would motivate these master planners, these founding fathers of change? That sounds so good, doesn't it? Uh, what would motivate them? Because really a, a lot of them, you're gonna recognize these names were prominent Americans who were now wanting to advocate for, you know, tenets of socialism, but they were thought of these men as capitalists. I mean, they had benefited from capitalism and from prosperity economics in the free market. So uh, some of them, let's see the next slide, uh, Andrew Carnegie, uh, of the, he was the giant of the steel industry. JP Morgan was the railroad guy. Rockefeller was the oil magnet. These wealthy and successful American industrialists were turning away from the constitution and embracing principles of the democratic socialism. Now, why would that appeal to these men? 
Well, socialism provides a concentration of power over the people and, and property. And these socialism was more self-serving and beneficial for these industry magnets because it allowed you to crush competition and pull the power in an elite group of, of people, all right? And so by gradually acquiring uh, the leadership of infiltrating politically uh, in America, it was possible for them to begin to control the policies that the government was going to, to put out. And also the power of the government then could be used to establish cartel privileges, giving special rights or exceptions to groups or associations, manufacturers, suppliers. And that also uh, would restrict competition because competition was frightening, you know, to these big magnets. So they wanted to squash competition. So how would they do that? Well, we talked about it before. These men knew that you can acquire control over the nations. If you can con uh, control their money, then you can control, you know, certain aspects. And so remember, they had that secret meeting in 1909 on Jekyll Island off of Georgia to form the Federal Reserve. Nothing federal about it. It's, it's in the hands of private bankers and there's no reserves. It's, it was not going to, our money was now not going to be backed by gold or silver like the constitution intended. And so let's see that next slide if we can, Tressie. And so we also know, uh, and so there were heads of industry and there were top uh, political uh, people in the administration that met on that island. It was a secret meeting. If you read the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, it talks all about it. And that Tuttle Twin children's book is my favorite because it breaks it down even a little bit more easily. And so uh, hundreds in that Reese report, it shows that hundreds of millions of dollars were, were funneled through these tax exempt organizations that these wealthy men uh, uh, set up. And they provided, like I mentioned, gifts and grants to institutional uh, ins educational institutions. All you need to do is go to, you know, historical sites on the East Coast, Colonial Williamsburg, Mount Vernon, Monticello, and all these foundations uh, have given significant contributions. Rockefeller single-handedly funded um, Colonial, Colonial Williamsburg. You go to those sites and you see their names on buildings and on placards. And so they began to um, manipulate the narrative of of history. I mean, all you have to do when you go to Monticello and you, you go into the bedroom of Thomas Jefferson, the tour guide starts talking about all his, you know, illicit, uh, illegitimate children he had with his slaves. And so it definitely creates, and we've asked the tour guides, where do you get your information? Because there, there's books in your gift store at Monticello that refute what you're telling in Jefferson's bedroom. And she said, oh, this is the script that we give that is formulated by the foundation. That's what I remember her telling me a few years back. And so they don't, they don't even know that they're being manipulated. Now, these, have, these, these heavily financed programs that these master planners uh, were um, uh, implementing through their uh, tax-exempt organizations emphasize the whole idea of collectivism uh, or the socialist system as a hope for the future. And that maybe in the 1900s, the founding fathers uh, were just not fit for this modern industrial economy and that the constitution was obsolete. And, um, 
and that these wealthy leaders also began, these industrials began to invest heavily in certain political candidates who would promote socialist policies. And we read some of those quotes from Senator Fulbright or Senator Clark or some of the justices last week uh, attacking and mocking the constitution. And, um, and also these uh, industrialists in the early 1900s began to buy up as many important channels of media, newspaper, radio, television, internet. And, and we, you, we can see that happening today with the Gates and the Zuckerbergs and the head of Google and Soros. He owns a lot, he's a big media uh, mogul as well. They're bankrolling the candidates that are gonna perpetuate the messages. And that's what they, they, they were doing early on in the 1900s. And their most loyal employees were pressed forward, employees of, of, of these industries were um, pressed to accept top level government uh, uh, jobs where they could help begin to set the policies in that executive branch. So, you know, you see these investigations that took place with the, the Reese reports during the mid 1950s and, and it showed that these founding fathers of change uh, were, had gained national political power and it, it, these seeds were planted around 1910, 1913, and 1920. And, and many of their programs had been pushed for years and, and we were beginning to see the fruits of these programs in the mid fifties. So let's see the next slide. So hence in, in 1913, we have the 16th amendment that you know allowed, this is just a little review, allowed the federal government to directly tax citizens instead of you know, the state being responsible for the budget, federal budget. Now the, the federal government could come in and directly tax us. And so the government began to get really fat and it put us on the road to socialism because now we could start spending money for specific welfare instead of the general welfare. And then of course the 17th amendment was, was passed just a few months later in 1913, which um, damaged you know, that the, the ability of the Senator to protect, kind of be on that wall protecting the state's rights. So now the senators, instead of going home and being beholden to the state Senate, uh, the state legislature, um, they're they're just like Congress. They they need they need money. They it takes sixteen at, at the minimum sixteen million dollars to run for the Senate. These men only make one hundred eighty thousand a year, so they were very beholden to you know special interest groups or the executive branch that could offer them goodies to take home to their state if they would support legislation that the president wanted. So, so we lost that check and balance and that separation of power began to get very fuzzy. And, and what that meant is the master planners could go right to DC uh, because everyone that held all the power was just centralized right there in DC, you know, and all the senators were, they could give, give them benefits as well that would help the senators get reelected. And so um, uh, let's see that next slide. So from then until now, every emergency we have seen has been a, an excuse to increase taxes and to strengthen the federal government and regulations and to really diminish uh, the local self-control self that our founders wanted. And, and um, we certainly saw that in COVID, how we were willing to give up our freedoms. And now we're seeing what prices go up everywhere. Interest rates are going up 
everywhere. And, uh, and some of these emergencies were contrived way back in the 1900s with the, the, the 16th, 17th, and the uh, founding of the Federal Reserve. Okay, and, and also what it meant is as, as we, some of these breakdowns occurred and the government grew in power, they could um, expedite this, this process of centralizing the power and they could actually manipulate, you know, certain things because we didn't, I mean, to be honest with you nowadays, uh, a lot of policy that's coming out of DC doesn't even go through um, Congress anymore. Uh, and, and we're not, we're not passing legislation. It's just the majority leaders are getting together and, and making agreements behind closed doors. And, and so um, they give the example in the book how, you know, getting into World War I um, as early as 1909, we, one of the, uh, let me see here. Oh, okay, let's see that next slide, Trussie, if we can. Um, World War I, Congressman Charles Lindbergh, who was the father of the Lone Eagle, who was the first one to, let's see that next slide, to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. He said, we were pushed into World War I. Now, see, I, probably we don't really understand this history, but he said, we, the Americans did not want to get involved. There is Charles Lindbergh. I'm not sure if that's the father, if that's the son who flew across the Atlantic, but his father was a Senator who had the courage. And I think he actually wrote a book about this, but he said, we elected a president for a second term because he said, Woodrow Wilson, he would keep us out of war during his first term. And we proved, we trusted him by a large vote. We voted him back in because we did not want to go to war, but no sooner was the president reelected than the propaganda uh, propaganda started to put us into war. So this was Woodrow Wilson. He said, there's never a more unstatesmanlike thing that we did to, uh, that we did to enter the war. We came out with establishing a without establishing a single principle for which we entered. And then right after that World War I, there was a planned depression in 1921. In just one year, 5 million people were thrown out of work. And Congressman Lindbergh wrote a book describing how this depression was deliberately planned to the great advantage of certain special interest groups, which would have been these master planners. And then let's see that next slide. Uh, there's a man by the name of Milton Freeman. He's a famous ec economic ec economist and won the Nobel Prize. He was actually an advisor to uh, Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and has written books about the free market. He taught at the University of Chicago. Thomas Sowell was one of his students. But Milton Freeberg uh, in one of his television broadcasts uh, um, talked about how this Great Depression, the Great Depression, which was from about 1929 to 1934, had been promoted and deliberately prolonged by the bankers now in charge of the Federal Reserve. Remember, they were private international bankers, that it had been extended because it benefited them. After, war, uh, after World War II uh, broke out in Europe uh, during September of 1939, there was widespread hope Americans did not want to get involved in World War II. And, and um, somehow they, they resisted the temptation to get involved. There was the sentiment that we didn't want to get involved. However, highly perceptive leaders who had served in Washington, they knew the tragic 
consequences of internationalism. So they were already starting to see it. They had just, you know, come from the World War One, and uh, J. Reuben Clark. Let's see the next slide, if we could, Trustee. He was a former undersecretary for uh, um, under Calvin Coolidge, former ambassador to Mexico. He was a wrote a lot about constitutional issues. I like how he says this, uh, trying to stave off our involvement in, in World War II. If we shall rebuild our lost moral power and influence by measures such as these, which will demonstrate our love for humanity, our justice and fair mindedness, we shall then be where we can offer mediation between two belligerents. America, the great neutral, will thus become the peacemaker of the world, which is her manifest destiny. Okay, so there were some that had not forgotten, you know, our early rootings. Uh, but obviously, this was not the case. How much we did get involved, and why did we get involved? Because we were bombed, right? And people will say, well, we were justified because it was an act of aggression. We, they, uh, we, you know, we had to, we couldn't just turn a blind eye. It's interesting as you study, you know, uh, that bombing of Pearl Harbor, we were actually meddling in the affairs of China and Japan. And we had put a trade embargo on Japan before they bombed us that almost decimated their economy. And so they retaliated by bombing us. So we were meddling in their affairs. So we didn't get involved because of the Holocaust or what Hitler was doing. We got involved because we, some will say Roosevelt, who was the president at that time in the 1940s wanted to go to war, but there weren't enough members of Congress who wanted to go to war. And so um, in Congress, supposedly are supposed to be the ones to declare war. And so we meddled behind the scenes and we forced their hand and we ruined their economy. They bombed us and then we got involved. And from there, we got involved in the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, Desert Storm, Afghanistan, like we talked about, and, and um, the Ukraine. So you can see how far we've come from not you know, having honest friendship and commerce with all nations and entang entangling alliances with none. So the last part, let's see where we are here. There's so much material. There's 21 pages <laughs> in this last section. So, and I'm, I'm skipping through a lot of maybe some important details I think you'd find fascinating, but I just can't get it in an hour. So please go back and fill in the blanks and really read and study this. There's something really interesting we're gonna talk about for the last uh, few minutes of class about these organizations that were established by these master planners, these founding fathers of change. In order for these master planners to begin to implement their programs to their greatest extent, they set up uh, more than 30 organizations, both nationally and internationally. And they would use these organizations to be the carriers or promoters of their messages. And um, they understood that if they could capture the top leadership of political parties and business and entertainment, then they could accelerate, you know, uh, what, what they wanted in, in media and education and churches. And so this is what happened. Um, a secret society was set up around 1909 during kind of that, you know, meeting of, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it, it occurred right probably because it was the same players uh, in the, that 1910 meeting off of Jekyll Island. And um, 
uh, this secret society, so to speak, uh, you'll see, let's see the next slide there. It's called the Round Table. And it was set up by Cecil Rhodes, who was a, a British mining magnate, but Morgan and Carnegie and Rockefeller were all in, in it. And it was a secret round table group. Uh, and the secret group there set up fronts for the purposes of carrying forward its, its message, its schemes. And um, the United States front was, known, was called the Council on Foreign Relations. It still exists today. Have you heard of that, the Council of Foreign relations, all right? So these are all these uh, uh, fronts for the various nations and you'll recognize some of them and we'll talk about a few of them. The Council on Foreign Relations is not the secret inner circle, okay? But its front activities are quite mysterious even to this day and they're very powerful and there's not a lot of publicity. If you try and find a lot of publicity on the Council of Foreign Relations, you won't find a lot. All right. So it, it, it was um, Rockefeller's money was involved. It was established in 1921. And it's a think tank that specializes in uh, the U.S. foreign policy and international affairs founded in, in New York City. And it's really the promotional arm for the new world order in America uh, through for the roundtable. And, um, and within the Council on Foreign Relations, there's actually a, a secret society within the CFR as well. And they push out their ideas for their own purposes. Now there's about four to 5,000 members and they're in uh, the US citizens who sit on this council. They're high government officials, they're scholars from universities, they're journalists, lawyers, businessmen, Hollywood stars, media like Angela Jolie, Katie Couric, President Carter, President Clinton, former Justice Breyers, former Mayor um, Michael Bloomberg, Warren Beatty, Madeleine Albright, Stacey Adams, Abrams, Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor in, in Georgia a few years ago. So what is their strategy? Well, a former member, John Kraft, pointed out that it was the creation of an international grouping of powers to establish socialism as dreamed by Karl Marx. He said it himself. And so um, this uh, Dr. Quigley, let's see the next slide, um, Jesse. Dr. Quigley, there's a Council on Foreign Relations. Remember the book, Hope, Hope and Tragedy? He was actually a member, the author, who's a, a, a teacher at um, Georgetown. And uh, actually, was he a teacher at Georgetown? Yeah, I think he was. And I think, um, Clinton took some classes by him and was very uh, influenced by his, you know, his theories. And so uh, Carol Quigley is, was a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. And um, he's entirely correct in his charge that the CFR uh, and the global establishment has really gained hold on the elected, elect, elective process or the elective process in the United States that and, and he'll say in his book, and it's really true, I believe, living in Washington, D.C., that no matter which political party goes into power, the winner is beholden to the powers of this Council of Foreign Relations to a significant degree. It's so interesting. I think this is why they hate uh, President Trump, because I do think he was a part of this oligarchy oligarchy, meaning where power is in the hands of the few for many years, where just a few elite people are really running things at the highest level in this country. But ultimately at some point, 
he exposed them for what they are. And because he was one of them for so much, I think in his life, and because he turned on them, they hate him. And he is in the way of this kind of great reset or new world order. And so uh, even today, uh, like just a few days ago, and in the post, like he still is the headline, Trump worker move boxes a day before FBI visit. Oath Keepers, January 6th, sentenced to 18 years. I mean, you would almost think President Trump was still the president because they are so afraid of him that he is headline news. You've heard me say way more than President Biden. And it's because he's turned on them. He's exposed what their true uh, motives are. Let's see that next slide. So Admiral Chester Ward, who was a longtime member of the CFR said the CFR as such does not write the platforms of both political parties or select their respective presidential candidates or control US defense and foreign policies, but CFR members as individuals acting in concert with other individual CFR members do. Ooh, isn't that chilling? So you can see how you know those that are running for office are controlled by these CFR members. And you can go online and you can kind of see who are our members. They're all heads of corporations and universities and even the arts, uh, that kind of thing. So let's see the next slide. So there's another group today called the Trilateral Commission. And this is a non-government, non-partisan group, uh, discussion group founded by David Rockefeller in 1973 to foster closer cooperation with Japan, Western Europe, and the U.S., and some of the members of this former members were Jimmy Carter, interesting, Jeffrey Epstein, our sex trafficker who was, um, you know, mysteriously killed, um, or he committed suicide, whatever they say. He was a member of the trilateral. Uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg, once again, former mayor of New York City. Henry Kissinger, who's still a member, he's still alive. I think he's in his 90s. Andrea Mitchell. Uh, general Petra Petraeus, who uh, was a general um, and, and director uh, um, of CIA under President Obama. And the trilateral, uh, these are influential economic and political leaders in the world, once again, to propose and construct a new world order. And it's been said that this commission could be far more devastating to the constitutional government and the American lifestyle than even the UN. Let's see the next slide. One of the top trilaterals, he was an author. He taught at Columbia University and campaigned for um, uh, Obama when um, he, he actually taught President Obama at Columbia and uh, campaigned for him when he ran for office. So he wrote this book exposing kind of the tenets of uh, uh, the um, trilateral commission it's interesting how they're quite open about what they're proposing to do. And so this man died in 2017, Brzezinski, but he was a member of the Trilateral Commission. And, and um, basically their tenets are to piecemeal gather nations into a one world order, form an international council to deal with political issues and form an international security body to enforce the peace education on all levels, this is for the whole world now, to be in the hands uh, or to be handled, education to be handled by an international body. Number five, distribution. This is all in our book here. Distribution of information to be in the hands of an international council. 
and to set up an international body to control production of goods and to set up an international body to control credit and finance and to call for American uh, American sacrifices. This notion that, you know, we, for collectivism, we have to, um, you know, be a part of the greater good. We need to make sacrifices. And we saw that, you know, with COVID, how they were asking everyone to stay home for the greater good and, and to give up our freedoms. And, and notice the emphasis uh, in these tenets is never on freedom, but all on internationalism. And uh, many of the founders of this trilateral commission are, are running the US government today, right? And so another group, let's see that another group called the Aspen Institute, and it was largely funded by Carnegie and Rockefellers founded in 1915, leading members of the Fortune 500 uh, belong to this group, enlightened leadership, open-minded dialogue. Many people run the media who belong to this group. And, <laughs> and the significant goal of the Aspen Institute is to set up a new world order to replace the individual sovereignty and national constitutions of various nations of the world, including our own. Wow. And then um, let's see the next slide, the Bilderberg uh, Group. They started in 1954. Uh, and they they meet, they're a secret group. They meet every year. So they they let you know that they're meeting. They, they put out enough information so people's, uh, you know, suspicions don't get raised too high. But um, they have met every single year since 1954. The Prince Bernard in Netherlands met at the Hotel Bilderberg and they, they, that name has just stuck. Look at that little graph there. Bilderberg's group connections is connected to everything in the world. And I think uh, because its members are the heads of every kind of industry. So imagine the influence. So all their meetings are closed. Only about 150 are invited. No one takes notes of the speeches. No reporters are sitting in on any of the debates. There's no handouts or policy statements or copies that are disseminated or given to the press after the meetings. Uh, the, the conferees, those that attend, depart after the meetings every year to the four corners of the earth to carry out the adopted goals, but the world is never really given even the slightest hint as to what was decided at those meetings. It's so interesting that the last Bilderberg meeting just happened two weeks ago, about 20 minutes. No, no, no. That was last year's meeting. About 20 minutes from my house at the Man, uh, Mandarin Hotel in 2022. But the, the meeting that just took place um, two weeks ago was their annual meeting was in Lisbon, Portugal. And 130 people participated and 23 countries were represented. People like Stacey Abrams, isn't that interesting? Her name keeps coming up. The head of Pfizer, uh, heads of Stanford and other uh, educational institutions, Henry Kissinger, was there the chair of the Museum for Modern Art, uh, someone head of the Carnegie Endowment, the president of Goldman Sachs. Those are the names that I could see from the US were there. And, and so they, they make a pretense of publicizing the meeting enough and letting you know who has been invited so that the presence of some of these world renowned personalities won't make it look like you know it's conspiratorial or mysterious. But um, there's the Bilderberg group. And then let's see the next slide conference. The Pugwash group um, started in 1954. Al Gore 
John Kerry are members of this group. This is why when Al Gore said he invented the internet, this group actually, their technology did help to invent the internet in 1954. And their research was a part of launching that Russian satellite in 1957. And there were Americans in, in this Pugwash group as well. This is one of the most powerful uh, uh, group of finance financiers, scientists, and uh, nuclear scientists. And this is really one of their goals is to disarm us, all right, the citizens of the world to disarm us. And uh, it's interesting that when that Sputnik Russian 1957 um, uh, satellite was launched um, and it was launched by some, you know, research and intelligence of, of men from the US as well, that they use that, remember, as an excuse that satellite to begin to control people and direct them towards the actions that they wanted. And we saw the changes that we began to make in education, right? Oh, we're falling behind. We'd rather be dead than red. And so we allowed, uh, you know, for our history and religious instruction to be pulled. So more advanced uh, curriculum studies. And, and wouldn't you know, we were a part of launching that Sputnik but it was done by deception, so to speak, so that they now could begin to control uh, America. It's interesting, Henry Kissinger is a part of this Pugwash conference and um, he actually, um, he was Secretary of State under Nixon Kissinger and he was excommunicated, he's Jewish, from um, the highest rabbinical court in the United States. He was excommunicated from Judaism now, I don't know why he was excommunicated, but that tells you that they, they were even onto him. And uh, he's, he's not a good dude, that Kissinger is. Okay, so uh, let's just talk about one more. And then I think we're coming to the home. We're, we're concluding here. Let's have the last, maybe uh, just a few more slides. Andrew Carnegie, oh, there's, there is Kissinger. Um, and so he's a, he's a man not to be trusted, but for some reason, God has allowed him to still kick. He's still he's still alive. I believe he is. Yeah, he's in his 90s. Okay, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace that has such a nice name. Andrew Carnegie has that wonderful rags to riches story where he started out as a little bobbin boy in a text mill in Pennsylvania and then a little a telegraph operator and then a railroad dispatcher. And then he kind of took advantage after the Civil War to get to the steel mills and shipping and by the middle age, he was one of the wealthiest men in the world. And then he sold all of his holdings to the JP Morgan for a half a billion dollars. But his foundation uh, that he created uh, is kind of at the heart of wanting to enforce peace. How in the world do you enforce peace? Uh, the trust, this trust has contributed most to the idea of a new world order. Uh, and little, I think, did he realize that it would be his organization that would uh, spend his money getting the United States into one of the worst wars in human history at that time, which would have been World War II. So there's many other organizations like the World Health Organization or the World Economic Forum uh, with Klaus Schwab and, and, and other organizations that we're not going to discuss, but they're all interlocked internationally, okay, with its secret control group, the round table, which is talked about in tragedy and hope. You know, the great contribution of this book is you, it helps you to understand how these men and women really think that really the utter contempt 
that these leaders have for ordinary people like me that uh, and and kind of treat us uh, you know their strategy is exposed in some of these books as treat us as helpless puppets on their international chessboard where giant economic and political uh, um, powers are subjecting us to war and civil strife and uh, confiscation and subversion and manipulation and deception and you know once again we saw firsthand uh, with this pandemic uh, and how they were able to control the world through COVID because can you can you not see how they're grooming us they're conditioning us to be obedient to their regimen you know we do what the government and the medical experts tell us to do and it worked pretty well didn't it so there's a little section in the book that talks about how the master planners have manipulated governments through these executive um, uh, agreements that have you know you can kind of bypass the um, Congress because senators are supposed to two thirds of the senators are supposed to approve a treaty if the president gets involved. But if they sign a, kind of like an executive order, the president, if you sign a, an executive agreement, the Congress doesn't need to know. And so some nefarious things took place during the let's see the next slide, the Yalta conference uh, after World War Two among Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin that uh, the Soviets still uh, consider some of the agreements we made with them to be binding on the US today. And we don't even know really what they agreed to in this uh, um, executive agreement. And then the League of Nations, let's see the next slide, Woodrow Wilson was a part of negotiating that, this league that you know all disputes in, in the world would be heard before this tribunal. And, uh, and then let's see the next slide, the United Nations Treaty, this, this organization came, came forth from a, a treaty. Um, and, 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 you know, that's interesting. I wonder if, if um, the Senate approved the United Nations Treaty, but it, it, um, it formed this organization that is the epitome of entangling alliances that has led to a lot of uh, political alliances, just the opposite of this organization when our founding fathers would want. And then let's see the next slide. President Carter, did you know in the 70s, he gave away the Panama Canal, a $20 billion uh, property of the United States uh, through this treaty. And the Senate, I believe, approved this. But what should have done, because it, it, it entailed money, uh, the House of Representatives controls the purse strings money. And because it, it entailed us giving away, you know, this $20 billion um, entity that we owned, we subverted the house though and, and ignored them and violations of constitutional procedures resulted. And he, he gave away, there's a little bit more, why would he give that away? But he did that unconstitutionally through treaty. And then let's see the next slide. The North Atlantic NATO is considered one of the most dangerous alliances that the United States is involved in. There's President Biden just recently. And uh, the problem with NATO is we are willing to bail out and help you know, everyone that belongs to NATO. It's kind of a, a mutual defense of, of nations against Soviet expansion is what originally was supposed to be. But um, this alliance means nothing if it's not mutually supported. They do not support us <laughs> when, when you know, there's a retaliation. When you know we like, I think uh, Libya um, bombed 
a discotheque. So we went as a NATO member went and got involved, but no one else from NATO had our backs. And so they don't always, uh, you know, we're, we're willing to go and police the world, but they're not as willing as the United States, uh, uh, the members of NATO. And so whew, that is the end of, of the content that we have today. It was once thought that, you know, it was the American dream uh, to make as many people as possible middle class, to enjoy, you know, a, a good level a lifestyle. And the middle class really was known, let, we can go to our full screen now, Tressie. The middle class of America was known as the backbone uh, of our society and an important segment of the population of America because we believed in these, you know, we love the constitution, we love the notion of self-government and we were freedom loving people. But obviously, if you're a master planner and you're trying to set up a virtual dictatorship, this kind of people, this middle-class, hardworking, patriotic, God-fearing people is, is like your enemy. And, you know, people like that are going to resist, you know, master planners, intention, dictatorship, dictatorships. At least this is what we hope we'll do. We're, I hope, I know, I don't have to hope, you are here today because you are part of those kind of people that value self-governments and security and, and freedom, and you want to resist, you know, these kind of, uh, this, these, these kind of groups, these, these kind of entities, these people. So it was, it's important, I think, to understand the attacks that have taken place over the last 125 years plus, the attacks on education, the attacks on churches, the attacks on our constitution that was really done by a lot of these master planners, these wealthy elites, these organizations that they, you know, banty together and, and understanding why they would do that. Their motives were self-serving to only grow their industries, uh, to, to, you know, limit, uh, uh, limit the ability of the competition and, um, and, and really to fundamentally change, uh, you know, and, and to put the, the power in the hands of a few. So when you kind of systematic, systematically understand how our country has become dismantled and why we're in the boat that we are, then we systematically know how to restore or repair that. So there's a lot of content in seminar three, right? It's a lot of problems, it's problems that we didn't know about, it's problems that we, we have come to pass on our watch. But you know, when we know what it's gonna take to repair it, how we have to repeal the 16th amendment, we have to cut off that unlimited funding that the government has through just widespread taxes. We have to repeal the 17th amendment because that will restore the checks and balances and put someone on the wall to look out for the state again. And we have to eliminate the Federal Reserve and let the natural program of supply and demand um, uh, work in, in the economy again and back money on something, not this fiat phony money that we've been printing for, you know, almost a hundred years, not quite. As we, as we make some of these repairs, this will give the power back to the people and to the states and it will decentralize all the power that has been amassed in Washington, DC. It's so easy now for master planners, like I mentioned, just to go to DC 
because all roads lead to Washington, D.C. And, and to, you know, promote people to high levels of power position or dangle goodies and, and, and benefits so, so some of these leaders can get reelected. And, but imagine if all the senators had to go home every week and report to their state legislature. Some of these master planners would have a hard time covering all 50 states. Now it's just easy just to go to one location and, and to you know, begin to control that one location. And so seminar four that we're going to start next week is about solutions, it's about healing and hope. I can't wait to discuss and for you to learn because I know you feel a little bit heavy, like how in the world are we ever gonna come out from under this kind of control? You've heard me say before, we gotta quietly get off their track because these enemies of freedom, they own this track. I mean, they, they're setting the rules. And even if we have a few victories and we get out ahead of the train, that train is, is gonna run us over. So we quietly get off and we start building our own track and we start teaching our children in the way that we know is truth. And we start supporting industry and business that you know is more aligned with our values. And ultimately, I call that the God track because we know that track prevails, all right? I mean, we, we have to still live in the world, but we don't have to subscribe to everything that they tell us, you know, how to educate our children or where to do business or, or you know, what societal changes we need to embrace. And so um, I think you'll be thrilled to know that we really can begin to peacefully restore the founding fathers' dreams for America or get us in a position to begin healing ourselves, our marriage, our home, our neighborhood, our little school systems, or what we can do to make some changes, to hop off that track and to be to, to build a, a track that that God is going to be able to step in and bless and accelerate, you know, and ultimately get to the destination that we want to go to get to. So get your seminar, your manual number four. And be prepared. This is a part of the, you know, four points of being anchored in hope. What we're going to do, you know, as we as we turn to God, as we study the Constitution, as we um, teach our children and keep them close, God will put on our hearts to do something. And so we're going to be about solutions the next four weeks. God has promised us, remember, he will heal this land if we turn to him. All right. And so. I really commend you for being here. You, we only have four classes left. This is a 16 week class and you have hung in there. That says a lot about you. And I think that says a lot to the heavens and will justify the heavens intervening in helping to heal the areas that you're desiring help and assistance in. So.